Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, November 30th. On today's show, we continue our off-season coverage of everything that happened in 2022 in the tennis world. Of course, on today's podcast, we're focusing on the Americans. It was a spectacular year for American tennis. Of course, on the men's side, you had double-digit players in the top 50 That hasn't happened since the 1990s. On the women's side, you had multiple Grand Slam singles finalists. This felt like the first time in, dare I say, a long time. It was really, really fun to be an American tennis fan this season, of course. With all of that success come so many different storylines to break down. And we'll focus on individual Americans throughout the month as well. We'll look at the players who we think may make an additional leap forward in 2023. We'll look at what was, wasn't sustainable moving forward from American tennis. But over the course of the next two days, we want to put a final bow on the 2022 American tennis season by naming our top 10 performers in American women's and men's tennis. And on today's show, we're going to focus on the American women. We're going to go through the top 10 performers during the 2022 WTA season and if you're going to try and break down such a monumental topic, you better have some help. Thankfully, I do joining me here on today's show as once again, joining me on the podcast is a returning champion here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, you know him as a writer for our website, CrackedRackets.com. For last word on tennis, popcorn tennis, of course, writer of his all about tennis blog as well. You also know him as one of the known personalities in the tennis Twitter universe. I say that now because we don't know how long that tennis Twitter universe (laughs) is going to last. Of course, it is our dear friend, David Gertler, who joins us on the show today. David, welcome back. It's good to see you. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say go blue to start. Go blue. (laughs) Big weekend for us. And it was honestly a very pleasant surprise. Oh, it was absolutely delightful, and you kind of spoiled my first question for you. It wasn't going to be tennis-related. I was going to say, in your history as a Michigan football fan, I'm not sure how long that history extends. So since 2015, I mean, then that's clearly the best victory of your Michigan football fandom, I will say. Is that the best sports fan victory you've had, dare I say, in your life? Oh man, I that that's a tough question because like for instance, Federer winning the 2012 Wimbledon was up there too. Um <laughs> but for team sports, I mean the Pelicans uh yeah, I mean it, it's got to be it's got to be at the top. Uh I would say last year just because it was the first time but we were so embarrassing in the playoffs which I hope doesn't happen again this year, that I'm going to say, at least for now, it's this it's this Ohio State victory. It's nice to actually have multiple to talk about. Yeah, exactly. That's hilarious. No, I mean, for me, 2012 Olympics, U.S. Open, to watch Murray get over the hump finally at that time in my life, that meant a lot. But, like, 
you know, I've been a Michigan football fan my entire life. I remember the yeah. John Navarro team getting a win, and then it's like, wow, we're really not going to beat them for this long of a stretch. None of the Chad Henney teams are going to get a win over Ohio State. And then, you know, just I know Brady Hoke got a win in his first year over a rough Luke Fickle team, but like these two just felt real. And again, we were talking about this before we started the show. McCarthy rushing in, lowering his shoulder, putting us up 24-20. That was outstanding. The Sandistrill pass breakup, Stover back of the end zone. That was ridiculous. But when Donovan Edwards runs for a second, you know, 40-plus yard touchdown, all I could think to myself is, oh, my God, like, this is happening. Like, oh, we're 12 and 0. Like, we we did it. And I was alive in 97. I don't remember 97. This is the best Michigan football team of my lifetime. And dare I say, Michigan football is like the one sport and team I actually still feel passion for. Because, you know, once you get into the media, you're not rooting for any individuals. You're just hoping good things happen for you to talk about. But this was just delightful. I, it was fantastic, and the defense just was swarming to the ball. They made Stroud look silly. I would say, though, that your Lions, you know, they have been feisty recently. Oh, um, Lions making the, the playoffs. Like Lions making the playoffs is top three. Let me be clear. Um, but let me just say also the opposite. I had the opposite reaction of Murray winning the Olympics. I was devastated. I I am a part of the Andy Murray. I won't say hater club, but the Andy Murray, I don't like him and I don't like his game. Um, and so I, watching him lose to Federer, it was kind of inevitable given the Del Potro semifinal, which just wore Roger out. But that was pretty rough for me. Sorry for, like, taking the conversation in a different direction. No, here's what I have to say, David. Everyone has a flaw, and for the longest time, I was wondering what yours was, and now I know. It's your thoughts on Andy Murray. Um, Some people would say Amina Anshba, that, uh, you know, the moon baller on the ITF tour. Some would say that my vocal support of her is a flaw. (laughs) Have you you watched her before? No, but I know – your style du jour, and so I can imagine it very, very clearly, David, and the sort of <laughs> junk ball she throws out. I feel like you and Madison Brangle should have had a run-in or two together. I feel like that should be a player you enjoy. Well, Anspa today won in over four hours, but Madison <laughs> Brangle, will she be on my list? That's for top 10. Now, that's a good question. And that is why we continue to have you back on the show, David, because you know how to get me back on track. And again, our exercise here today, we want to go through our top 10 American women of 2022. Now, how did we come up with our list? Look, it's not just the straight who were the top 10 women in the rankings in 2022. Now, I have that information available, and for what it's worth, let's do that at the start. Here are your top 10 Americans to end the 2022 season. Jessica Pagula, top-ranked American, world number three. There is no doubt she will be in the top two of both of our lists. Will she be the unequivocal number one? We'll find out. Second, Coco Goff at seven. You have Madison Keys third at 11. Danielle Collins ranked 14th. Anisimova, 23. Sloan Stevens ended the year ranked higher than I expected. 37, when looking at the list, was not where I thought she'd be. I thought she'd be more in the 50 to 60 range. Good sneak 
attack from Sloane Stevens to get back into the top 40, just make life a little bit easier for herself moving forward. Of course, after that, Ali Risk, 41, Bernarda Pera, 44, Shelby Rogers, 46. So just to be clear, nine top 50 Americans to end the 2022 season. Yes, Serena Venus no longer a part of that list, but that's a pretty good group to be rolling with moving forward. Of course, the 10th highest ranked American woman, number 59, Madison Brangle. David, your reaction to that top 10? Now, let me ask you this. It's all great to have top, you know, to have all these top 50 players, but how many of them are actually major, like that you think could win a major? It's a very good question to ask, and that is not where I expected to start this conversation, but I think it is a good place to start. Look, Coco Goff, 18 years old, She's been the best of her age group in every year of her life. Give her some time. She made her first final. We'll get into her season with more depth a little bit later on, but I think she has to be at that list. I think Amanda Nisimova is going to rank high on both of our lists. To see Nisimova relatively healthy, playing relatively a full season when she was on court healthy, the level we saw was spectacular all year long. I think she would probably be someone I would say has Grand Slam winning potential. After that, I mean, do you want the Liv Havdi argument? Obviously, do we have to start talking about players who are under the age of 18? Maybe not. I see the point you're trying to say in that you look at this group and maybe there's not the definitive killer that, of course, Serena Williams was. But that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, David. Like, we've all been spoiled as American women's tennis fans because we've had Serena as the crutch for the past two decades. Venus, Sophia Kennan, who, shock, if you had told me in 2020, like before the pandemic, that we would be ranking top 10 players, and I'm going to say spoiler alert, Sophia Kennan is not on my list. Nowhere like, close to the top 10 on either of our lists. Crazy, right? Like if 20, if you think back to like what we were thinking in 20, early 2020. How about early 2021? Coming off of her winning a slam and making the final at Roland Garros oh, as it? well. And yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. Like that is another wild card in this discussion is if we get anything close to even 90% of 2020. Sophia Kennan back on tour. I mean, you keep in mind, Sonia Kennan is under 25 years old. I think she's, what, like 23? There's a lot of good tennis ahead for Kennan. Yeah, tw- just turned 24 years old. Excuse me. Do I think she's already had the best results of her career? I mean, maybe. She's already hit world number four, but do I think she can be a top 20 player in the world again? Absolutely. And so, again, if it's Anisimova, Kennan, Goff, with players like Pagula, Keys, Collins, all supplementing that top group and still being in the mix for quarterfinals or further at big event. I guess let's start here then, David. State of American women's tennis coming out of 2022. Do you feel better, worse, or the same as you did entering the year? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say, I'm going to put a caveat in here. I would say before the tour finals, I would say I felt better after watching that no offense. Sorry for the language show in the tour finals. Um, I would say I feel a little worse, especially about Goff in the forehand. So, may again, why worse? Talk big picture. Why? Because obviously, is it? It can't just be based off one result. No, but just seeing how the forehand for Goff is not progressing the way that I expected it to. 
And I don't, and I think that players are starting to figure her out a little bit. I think that I, her net game is fantastic. I like her first serve. I just, the forehand I expected to, and I know I keep saying the forehand, the forehand, the forehand, but I expected the forehand to be a little more potent. And I thought that, especially during the U.S. Open, it seemed like it was getting there, but in the later stages of the season, it almost regressed a little bit. What do you think about her forehand? I mean, about her game in general. Here's the thing. If you're saying the state of, more broadly before I address the golf thing, because we'll get into golf when we talk about her season if you're saying the state of American women's tennis is a bit dimmer because you're lower on the upside of golf coming out of 2022 than you were going into the year, I don't think that's an unfair argument to make because certainly Coco Golf's ceiling probably defines the next decade and a half in American women's tennis. She is that special of a generational talent. I, I mean, we disagree on the assessment. Like, I do not feel any worse about Coco Goff coming out of 2022 than I did going in. If anything, I maybe feel a little bit. Did you expect her to win a title this year? I mean, yes, but did I expect her to make a Grand Slam final and or did, reach the WTA well, we Tour get, finals? Yeah. No. And so okay. that's why... You know, again, I don't feel worse about Coco Goff coming out of this season. I would have loved to see Collins, Keys healthier and playing 12 months of tennis because I think when they do, then the ceiling for American women's tennis more broadly does get a bit higher. But Pagula being a top five player this year was a luxury. And I don't know if we're going to have that luxury moving forward. I don't know how replicable it was. Anisimova getting back in the picture was a big win. You have some younger yeah. players like Lou, McNally, you know, Volley Nets to an extent, Mandlick, Kruger, if you want to get real hipster. I think the two college players. I Navarro, love Kruger's team. Yeah, I think Navarro and Stearns had really good six months in their first full time or first full six months of their pro career. I don't think I feel better. You're right. Because with Iga making the leap to being the generational prospect and how her game matches up with American women's tennis generational prospect in Coco Golf, that's tough for American women's tennis moving forward. But I do think more broadly, with some of the young players getting a little bit better, Collins, Keys, and as we mentioned earlier, Stevens sort of holding steady, Shelby Rogers as well, tail end of alley risk. I think the three-year outlook looks pretty good. Like, I, I I don't think American women's tennis is going to drop off over the next three years. Now, will we make a leap? That's tough. But I don't think we're going to drop off. I'm curious your thoughts, again, broadly on that three-year, five-year projection. No, I agree with you. I think that we're always going to have death. But I, yeah. but I think for me, what I'm thinking about is who can win a major. Okay. And to be honest, and we can get into – I'll get into it later about – Coco Goff's final at Roland Garros, that was not a typical run to a final. It was more like a 500 um, than a, than a uh, you know, like a Grand Slam, like beating all the big names, which, you know, you typically have to do to get to a Grand Slam final. But with that said, you're right. Got, uh, women like uh, Kruger, I'm very high on, Claire Liu, uh, even Ann Lee, who I is Spoiler alert is not on my list, but the death of women's tennis in the United States is very high. But how many people do I think can win a major? Maybe Keys and Collins. Yeah, I mean. In the next three to five years. 
I, I think that's fair. I like I, I don't have much pushback to that and I this is why I like having you on the show because sometimes I lower my expectations to try to keep a glass half full perspective, but the expectation for American women's tennis has always been competing for and winning slam titles, particularly throughout the Serena Venus era. And you're right, from that standpoint, the next three years might be a little bit surprising if it's Iga cleaning things up or Sabalenka makes a big jump. Maybe Osaka returns to her top form and rescue, same thing. I think Coco Goff belongs in that stratosphere of conversation, but you're with, right. We just haven't with seen. Iga? No, I, I think she can be that sort of player, but she's not right now. Like, I, I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I am betting on her continued progress, but. It sounds like you are not. And so I suppose with that in mind, there's your more broad picture of the state of American women's tennis. Would you say, so did I talk you into holding steady as opposed to down after 2022? Yes. No? Someone, okay. Someone. I, no, no, you you make great arguments. <laughs> but I think I'm just caught up on Coco Goth. But we'll get to her. Yeah, it's fair. And look, you're right. There are some players who are going to be notably absent, like Ann Lee. I was ready to make a big bet on this year after how she finished the 2021 season, but whether it be injuries or just struggling a bit with her form, she did not pop. You're right, Sonia Kennan, not going to be on our list. But I've decided, David, impromptu, I think the debates are more fun at the bottom, but the names are probably more relevant at the top. So let's start at number one. David, who had the best season in American women's tennis? So this one... And first of all, actually, let me ask you this. I apologize for cutting you off. That's okay. How did you determine your list? What was the criteria? Because I know I sent you some things, but ultimately, what did you factor most? A lot of it, and actually more, I just kind of, what I, so here's my process. is I looked through Grand Slam results. I looked at overall record for the year, keeping in mind that obviously someone like, Bernard Pera is playing at a lower level more often than someone like Coco Goff, um, you know, just to throw two, you know, names out there. I also look through each result of the year. And so like quarterfinal, I look like, did they make the quarterfinals or semifinals of Indian Wells, Miami, Bad Hamburg? I went through it all. Um, and I also looked at what, did they win any titles this year? And if they did, what was the level of those titles? Is that kind of what you did do? Yeah, I would say year-over-year ranking improvement was something I factored in probably a little bit more than you did. Or what were your expectations going into the year? Did I expect you to make a big jump? Did I expect you to hold steady? What actually happened throughout the course of the season with your progress? Obviously, you know, hold percentage, break percentage. Was there any year-over-year improvement? But then... The arbitrary category I always throw into my list is, did you exceed my expectations? And how valuable was that exceeding of expectations? So, for instance, with Jessica Pagula, I don't want to say she made the leap into elite of the elite because only Iga did that on the WTA Tour in 2022. But that next leap into the definitive tier two, I know I'm going to see you quarterfinals or further of every big event, that was Jessica Pagula this season. And that's the second most difficult leap to make in all of tennis. And so, you know, that sort of thing matters. Or if you had been hovering outside the top 100, but finally solidified your spot inside that top 100, as a couple of young Americans did this year, you know, that is something I value significantly on my list, even more so than, again, 
if you want to know who the 10 high, best Americans were, go check the rankings. Like that is a very quantifiable metric to measure success from each of these players. There's a little non-quantifiable in my list as well. I'm sure there is in yours too. And with that in mind, David Gertler, who's number one in the on your list? For me, it's Jessica Pagula. Uh, I don't know if that's a big shock, um, but I'll tell you why. Because so first off, she's world number three. It's hard to argue with that. Um, quarterfinals, you talked about her consistency. Quarterfinals at the Australian Open, at the French Open, at the U.S. Open. She was 42 and 21 on the year. She won the mass, she won a Masters in 1000 in Guadalajara. Here are her results from uh Canada onward. So she made the semifinals of Canada, quarterfinals of Cincinnati, quarterfinals of the US Open, semifinals of San Diego. Uh she won Guadalajara and then she made the WTA finals. It's that week in, week out, which you were just talking about, where we don't have to doubt her. Whereas with someone like Sloan Stevens, she threw in a bunch of clunkers this year. Um, so even though, like, for instance, I believe she made the uh, quarterfinals at the French Open, it's less impressive because you don't know what you're going to get in a week in, week out with her. Whereas with Pagula, she's always going to be solid from the baseline. She's always going to have a pretty good serve. She's going to be able to generate power from both wings. She's really good at the net. There's not a lot of holes in her game and it reflected in her results. What What do you think? No, I, I think she's the unequivocal number one and she's number one on my list as well. You look for Jessica Pagula. She was one of just, uh, I believe it's eight players to finish top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now she was in the top 20, you know, top 25 club because uh, that break percentage tr- uh, tailed a bit at times this season. But no, you know, statistically, she was unequivocally one of the best players in the world all year long. And, you know, you mentioned the nine quarterfinals. Yes, three of them came at the slams. But maybe even more impressively, it's that, you know, 1,000-level event in Miami. She's in the quarterfinals. 1,000-level event in Madrid. She's in the quarterfinals. 1,000-level events in Toronto, Cincinnati, Guadalajara. She's in the quarterfinals. She showed up and played her best tennis and beat everyone she was supposed to beat at the biggest events all season long. And, you know, we like to play a game on our shows, good win, bad loss. And when you look for Pagola, you know, 42 and 21, she won two thirds of her matches overall on the year. I really only have five bad losses and one of them I'm willing to throw out. So let's go through the list. She loses six and three first match of the year to Bagoo. Yes, in theory, Bad looking law. back, but it's the first match of the year, so I don't count it. So okay. that's a throw. That's a throwaway for me. Fair. I would s- fairly fair. Yeah. If okay, and not. I, it's just like whatever. I just don't yeah. care about your first match of the season. I guess it's just for me, Bagoo on hard courts. Like, come on. It's true, but again, first match of the season, and she more than made up for it. I agree. Yeah, Buzkova, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, Buzkova three sets Indian Wells. Uh, Buscova on a slower court. Uh, I, I'll give her a pass. I'll give her somewhat of a pass. Yeah, there. I agree. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Vandeway three sets Charleston. Bad. Bad loss. I agree. That's our first unequivocal bad loss. Yastremska, Billie Jean King Cup straight sets. I just don't care. Like, I'm sorry. Okay. I, I don't view that as a bad loss. I agree. I agree with you. Martich two and six Wimbledon. Uh, bad loss. I mean, okay. Martin does have the backhand slice, which can be effective on grass, but 
Man, you can't. You shouldn't be losing to her uh, in the grass court. I don't you, think. I agree with you. How many career matches do you think Pagula's played on grass? I would guess probably twenty or less. Thirty-one. So, okay. like again, not a great loss, not a terrible loss, but fine, bad loss. Daria Seville, five and four, Washington. I watched that match. She was terrible. Yeah, bad that loss. was a bad loss. Like, so there's three. That's it. Because down the home stretch, Iga, Iga, Sakari, Sabalenka, oh, Jabur, like. What about Halep in Canada was not playing well and she should. And I watched that match too. Pagula should have beat Halep. In yeah, but Canada. Halep won the event. Yeah, it was but a three set match. It was 6-4 in the third. Like, I just refuse to view 6-4 in the third as a bad loss. Especially if that player wins the event. I agree. I agree. I That's agree. why, like, foundationally, again, you talked about that week-in, week-out excellence. She had three bad losses and well, played we're not 60 including plus the w- matches. What about the WTA finals? No, she – I mean, look, it's always tough for a player in their first two or finals to adjust to that format where right off the bat you have to play your best tennis. There's no working your way into the event because it's all top ten players at all time. And certainly when you look for Pagula, you know, those are two big numbers where she struggled. You look for her 7-13 and 13 against top 20 opponents this season, you know, 3-12 and 12 against the top ten, although I would point out four of those losses are to Iga, so they shouldn't count. So 3-8 and eight against people who are here humans um i think for pagula look here's the big thing why she's number one is all those quarterfinals the consistency i mentioned the 42 wins that's fourth most on the wta tour amongst top 50 players this season it was also the year over year improvement 72.9 percent hold percentage her best in a full season of wta tour play her break percentage dipped but it was still a top 25 number on the wta tour and it's just again Watching her play, even obviously three years ago, but even two and a half years ago, where you just said, well, how, you know, she is rock solid from the baseline. She is a machine back there, but how is she going to make life easier for herself? She has done that, whether it be hitting her spots better on the serve. She is a willing volleyer now, David. She'll play the swinging volley out of the air as her first strike. She'll come forward to the net, obviously has had some double success as well. Look, I understand for Jessica Pagula, she, you know, wins the the second Guadalajara title, uh, and that was really a, a feather in her cap she needed this year. That was her only title. She only made two finals, I know, in Guadalajara and Madrid, but she was relevant at every big event that we played this season, and it just kept American women's tennis in the mix. So I think she has to be the unequivocal number one. You said it a lot better than I could have, much more eloquently. I agree. We <laughs> no. agree. That's teamwork. I Again, I think that one's pretty easy, so that's why we're going to move by that quickly. All right, this is where we start our debate. Number two, David Gertler, on your list of the top 10 American women seasons, who is it? I'm gagging a little, but I have to say Coco Goff. <laughs> <laughs> me- well, she's number two on my list as well. I think this one's pretty obvious, but I'll let you make the case both positive and negative. Okay, so she is where I, I can't – you can't deny the fact. She is world number seven. She was 38 and 23 on the year. She made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, which I actually thought was the major where she played the best. Um, I was, for instance, when I think in the third round, she played Madison Keys and she was really good. The forehand in that match was really good. Um, 
And in general, in the U.S. Open, when she played Shui Zhang, um, the forehand was holding up much better than it had been in the past. Um, she did make the final of Roland Garros. Here's the issue with that final. You mentioned it earlier that she made a Grand Slam final. And I can't and I can't take it away from her because objectively she did make the Grand, a Grand Slam final. But let's go through who, who she played to get there. Rebecca Marino on clay. Rebecca Marino is a big hitter. On clay, she's not as good. Um, Allison Van Oitvig, again, someone who loves fast courts, grass, not a great win. Kaya Kanepi, again, someone who likes faster courts. Elise Mertens, Mertens was in a huge slump at that time, and she's not that great on clay. Uh, Sloane Stevens mentally checked out after the first set. I watched that one. Mart, that was the quarterfinals. Uh, in the semifinals, she played Martina Trevisan to play uh, Trevisan in the semifinals of a Grand Slam, especially when Trevisan was injured, is a very, very, very fortunate draw. And then she got absolutely spanked in the final. Um, so I don't really sure she didn't make it to the final without, you know, all in straight sets. It's not that impressive to me. I'm, it's, it's more like a 500 draw. Um, so I don't want to sh- on her too much, but that's just the facts. Um, with that said, though, her backhand's still great. Her first serve is great when she's locked in. I don't know what would the hell was going on during the WTA finals where serve went AWOL, but I'll just kind of put that as an anomaly at the end of a long season for such a young player. But her forehand is not progressing. And it, I mean, it showed flashes like at the U.S. Open, but I don't when I look at where it was at the start of the year versus where it was at the end of the year, I don't necessarily think it's progressing the way we thought it was. And you mentioned how Sviatek has uh, separated herself from the field with the way that people were talking after Coco Goff beat Venus. We would have thought that Coco Goff was where Sviatek is now. And she really has not met up to the expectations that the media has put on her. That's not her fault, of course, but at the end of the day, she has not nearly had the result, no titles this year. If you had told me before the start of the year that Coco Goff would have zero titles in 2022, I would have called you crazy because this was supposed to be her breakout year. And quite frankly, if we look at the expectations that were set on her again, not by her, she has not met them, even though she's number two with the Grand Slam final. Sorry, I'm like going on a long talk. I'm, I'll, I'll be quiet now. You never have to apologize because God knows that is the foundation of this pod is me talking uh, nonsensically nonstop. Look, again, I said this earlier. Everyone has a flaw, David, and now we know yours. And it's just being wrong about Coco Goff. And again, you mentioned that she didn't win a title. You're right. That is disappointing. But if I would have told you before the year, Coco Goff is going to reach a career high of number four. She's going to end the year inside the top 10 and she's going to qualify for the year end finals. You would have said that is unequivocally a successful year for Coco Goff. And I think pretty unequivocally, it was a successful year for a player, David, who the key piece you're missing out here. She's still 18 years old. It's like what Coco Goff, uh, what Iga Swiatek is doing at age 21, it's historical. You know, again, she's the seventh youngest player in WTA history to win three slam singles titles. That's why she is not yet eliminated from the greatest of all time discussion. But when you look historically at Coco Goff, and I'm not going to go through all of the numbers right now, but like the Justine Ennen, 
Kim Kleister's tier of teenage success, which are the players oh, who are really, yeah. really good, but not generationally successful, David. That's the tier Coco Golf is on with her historical track record. And I'm not saying she's going to sustain that sort of growth, but I think you just can't write off the fact, like we talk about how impressive the nine quarterfinals were for Jessica Pagula. You know who else had nine quarterfinals this year, David? Coco Golf. Like we mentioned, you know, the the struggles for Pagula. She had three top ten victories. You know who else had three top ten victories? Coco Goff. You look for Jessica Pagula, she was seven and thirteen against the top twenty. Coco Goff this year, five and fourteen against the top twenty. Not that different. Of course, you look for Coco Goff overall on the year thirty eight and twenty three. Yeah. The thing I really like for Goff this year, and the thing you have to do to become the elite of the elite, you just have to beat everyone you're supposed to beat. And we saw Pagula do that on steroids this season. Mm-hmm. Well, we saw Goff at 18 years old, David, able to do that this year as well. You look for her against opponents ranked outside the top 20. She went 33-9 and nine against those opponents this year. I also feel like it's worth mentioning two of those losses were to Simona Halep when she was ranked outside the top now, 20. I think all of us know Halep is, a border, is not only a top 20, but I would say a top 10 player. What I'm trying to say is is what we saw from Coco Goff this season is that if you don't have that weapon to hurt her forehand with relentlessly, you are not going to beat her anymore. And to have that established at age 18, that's why this season is an unequivocal win for me, David, because she finished the year top 10. She got that first really rough WTA finals as well as that first really rough Grand Slam finals experience under her belt. And those are the sort of experiences, the calluses she needs to build at this point of her career. So, yes, there were some struggles. You're right. And I do still think foundationally, especially this matchup, Iga's heavy topspin to the Coco Golf forehand, is, that is the problem Coco Golf will have to solve if she wants to become that player that all of us have thought she could be since we've seen her over, you know, 40 years ago or whenever it was. But I, th- I don't think the answer to those questions, uh, to that question is it's unsolvable. Like, even in the small videos we've seen of her offseason this year, it's drilling that forehand, shortening the backswing over and over and over again. She's 18 years old, David, and we know what the problem is. Isn't that a good thing in her career moving forward? It's like, look, you fix this. We know what the ceiling's going to be, and we already know how high the floor is. Three things. <laughs> Three things based on what you said. First off, we knew what the problem was three years ago when she initially came on the scene, and she really hasn't improved it that much, I think, um, in terms of the forehand. Like her forehand. Fair, but she's still a teenager, but go on. But how, but. How long can we wait? We see people like uh, Fruvia Tova, the Fruvia Tova sisters coming on. You know, there's going to be people, there's going to be players younger than her. Sure, but did you see Tiafo? Just uh, make the U.S. Open semifinals and his forehand finally seeming to click on all cylinders. It's like his first four years, it was very clear that was the struggle. And slowly but surely, things have started to click. Like slow development had the soccer serve. It's like slow development does happen. That is – I'll give you that. Uh, but go on. The second thing is her, you talked about how high her ranking is. Her, high, her ranking is that high, true, but it's largely based off that Roland Garris final against the weak – you know, like I said, weak competition. Um, and not saying that, you know, those players weak on clay competition. If you if that was a grass court with uh 
Benoit Bank and Kanepi and all of them, totally different story. But on Clay, Rebecca Marino, but on Clay, her ranking is majorly boosted based on that. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say is we talk about how Pagula and um, Goff have similar records versus the top 10, but both of their records suck against the top sure. 10. So that's not so that, that's not anything to praise her on. It's something to say that they both need to improve. You're that. right, but everyone's top 10 records suck this year. And that's except for Egas. And that's why the WTA Tour finals were so necessary because it's like we need to see these top players compete against one another. Who has the structural advantages? And it's like Ega does because she's Ega. Sabalenka, Garcia have weapons that on the right day, the right surface, doesn't matter who you are, they can be untouchable. We learned some things. And again, we know what the story is for Coco Goff. But if you're asking me, am I buying stock, selling stock coming out of 2022? I think I'm buying stock still in Coco Goff. I think, you can buy my stock. Okay, I'm happy to do it uh, for you, David. But with that said, let's move on as you know through our list. And we can go a little quicker you know, through some you of You know what's now. so funny, Alex? I'm sorry. Please, but, no. Like, we both have her number two, but yet are our, we're like, uh, you know, debating each other, even though we both have her number two. Well, that's th- the fun because it's just, again, did she have a good season? It sounds like you're saying no to that question. I don't know how that answer can be no. I would – good – you know, good is a rel- is a term that can be interpreted different ways. That's very true. So relative to where I expected her to go, no. Relative to the rest of the field, yes. Fair enough. We'll leave the golf argument there. Who's number three on your list? I think maybe this is where we might know. No, this. I don't know where we're going to start to disagree. No, I think this is going to look the same for us, but go ahead. So let me start by saying three through five, I have extremely tight and six through eight. I have extremely tight. Um, I like that. I would. So we actually might be different here because I, I, went back and forth with my three through five. Um, I ultimately decided on, and sorry for being so long-winded, number three is Amanda Anisimova for me. Um, Okay, and for the record, my three through five group is definitely a tier as well. Make the case for Anisimova at three. World number 23, that's not really my case, but I'm just putting that out there. Um, 33 and 14 on the year. When I saw that, even I was a little surprised at how great that record was for this season. Um, She did win a title this year in Melbourne, too. I know it's at the beginning of the year, but ultimately wins at the beginning of the year count as much as wins at the end of the year um, at equivalent levels. Um, Quarterfinals at Wimbledon, she was consistently solid, so... um, like I said, quarterfinals at Wimbledon, quarterfinals at San Jose, quarterfinals at Bon Bad Humburg, fourth round at Roland Garros, quarterfinals at Rome, quarterfinals at Madrid. I'm going backwards. The semifinals at Charleston, fourth round at the US at the uh, Australian Open. So just that consistency week in, week out, again, compared to someone like Sloane Stevens, is was impressive to me. And especially and yes, she did not play, I believe, a full schedule. Um but when she did play, she was always in the mix. Um, and she did beat, for instance, Osaka at full strength at the Australian Open versus I don't consider Osaka, you know, towards the end of the year the same as she was at the beginning of the year. I think she was better at the beginning of the season. Uh, and I consider that a really good win for her, too, and a big stage. Um, what do you think? No, I, it's an excellent case to make. And 
I was thinking about leaping her after making that case. Look, Anisimova is also one of those eight women who finished top 25 in both hold and break percentage this season. And simply put, she just reminded all of us why we all felt so high about her upside back when she made that French Open semifinal in 2019. You mentioned it to win Melbourne the first week of the season after really struggling. I mean, let's not forget 2021, she goes 18 and 16 overall, right? And sort of found her form by the end of the season. Good runs in Montreal and Indian Wells, but there were a lot of questions about the health, about obviously Anissimo was dealt with so many things off the court as well. Where was she mentally entering the season? And to your point, as good as the Osaka win was, the Benchich win the round before might have been even more impressive. And one could argue justifiably, she played Ashley Barty better at the Australian Open than any player played Barty throughout the course of that event. Hmm. I, I actually was going to say someone else did later in my list. But well, leave- Danielle Collins would be the other option, obviously, yeah, for yeah. that. But I think they both played Barty really, really tough. Semifinals, Charleston, quarterfinals, Madrid and Rome, as you mentioned. And, you know, qu- the big results, round of 16 Australia, round of 16 Roland Garros, quarterfinals Wimbledon this year. Now, she was injured by the end of the season, which slowed things down, but... No, you mentioned it, 33 and 14. She won 70% of her matches this season. If you go by win percentage on the WTA Tour this season, that's 70% uh, win percentage for uh, Anisimova. You know, that ranks fourth. She trails just Sviantek, Halep, and Jabor in win percentage this season. Of course, if you want to get more specific, you know, by strength of schedule, you look for Amanda Nisimova this year. She had four victories against top 10 opponents. That number ranks tied for fifth on the WTA Tour. You look for her top 20 wins. She had nine. That number ranks tied for fourth on the WTA Tour. Again, when we saw Amanda Nisimova, we saw a player who was arguably one of the 10 best players on the WTA Tour this season, just didn't quite play enough events down the season's home stretch to really make that top 20 leap. But, you know, how many times do we make the joke here on this show, David, that there are 40 top 20 players right now on the WTA Tour? <laughs> She's in the top half of that group. And just with the weapons she possesses, how clean that contact is, you know, the service motion, which just allows her to play first strike tennis, how pure the backhand is. I think anyone who sold their stock after the 2021 season for Nisimova is really regretting that because tennis is not the problem for her. It's just staying healthy and staying on court, you know, for a full 40 weeks. Absolutely. And I I completely, I completely agree. I, I, Do you I, think I, in American women's tennis, so let me ask you this, who raised their profile higher this year, Pagula or Anisimova from the start to the end of the season? Because I think you could argue in American women's tennis, no player raised their stock more than Anisimova. Are you talking about what I think or what the media is kind of? Uh, no, David, first of all, what you need to understand now is we are the media. So you don't get to use that anymore. Um, but no, I'm curious what you think. Oh, man, that's a tough one. That actually is a really tough one. I would say Pagula did. Um, and I would say so because she made the quarterfinals at three slams versus one. And I I just think that she played. But now when I'm looking at the when I'm really crunching the numbers, I'm like, Pagula really did not have that much better of a season than Anisimova did, objectively. 
um, without, you know, taking away, you know, accounting for the fact that Anissa Mova got injured, which is no part of her own, you know, that's not her fault necessarily. Um, I would say Pagula by a hair, but it's closer than you would if I didn't look at like the what the numbers were. You know? So who ends the year at a higher stock price is Jessica Pagula. I agree with you. Whose stock price raised more throughout the season is Anissa Mova, who's high, by the way, from a stock perspective, is higher than Pagula. Like coming off of the 2019 French Open, we were ready I to, agree. you know, I'm still was ready to say Anissa Mova could be one of those generational players of her age group. Pagula ends the year with a slightly higher stock price, but which one would I rather own going into 2023 is Anisimova because I, I, just, I don't know how Pagula has a better season than this one in her career, and it just feels like Anisimova has put herself back on track. You know what, David? You convinced me. She's number three really? on the list. Yeah, oh. I'm moving her up. Now, she oh, was wow. number four before, but I think – Look, the the two players three and four on my list were two players who, again, yeah, you know, Onisimova actually did play a pretty healthy amount of matches in the end. But match for match this season, win healthy, Danielle Collins was an unequivocal, unequivocal top 10 player in the world this oh, season. Oh, I agree. And I think her high, as good as Onisimova was— Obviously, Collins High making the Australian Open final, beating Iga the way she did 4-1 in the semifinals. That was really the last time we saw Iga lose a match like that. To see Collins, after being so, dare I say, unhealthy, for lack of a better term, for the majority of the season, play the level she did in that first set against Sabalenka in the U.S. Open uh, round of 16 was just laughable. You know, the match against Vekic in San Diego, the match against Sakari in Guadalajara were two really, really fun matches. The problem is you look for Collins, she was 21 and 12 overall in the year. Like, that's just not a ton of matches to go off of. Now, when she was healthy, her best might have been the best in American women's tennis this year. And that's why I initially had her at three. But I liked your case for Anissa Mova. That said, I can't put Collins lower than four. Where do you ever? I have her at five, and it's not because – and this is, again, I have three through five so close, but it's really just because we did not see enough of her. If she played a full schedule, she probably would have been three. But and because I I think if she played a full schedule, David, she might have been one. You're right. Her – I mean, she was – I thought that she was Barty's toughest test at the Australian Open. She was really close to – she fought really hard. She beat Ego, like you said. Um, I thought that she was even impressive in beating Jabor in Miami. Um, her best is better than almost anyone in the world. And her best on a hard court might be better than Ika's best. You know, I mean, no, I won't say that. But <laughs> it's close to Ika. You know, she's comparable. Um, and I was really impressed with her. But when you look over the results, it's just like, for me, it's like, you know, there's not that much else there um, for her. You know, second round of the French Open, first round of Wimbledon. She made the fourth round of the U.S. Open, but and she beat Osaka. But Osaka, like I said before, was, de- you know, was not the Osaka she was at the beginning of the year. And then Buxa and Cornet are not that impressive. Then she lost to Sabalenka. Um, and so... It's tough because I am like, I'm a major Danielle Collins fan. The way she hits that backhand is unbelievable and something to aspire to is, you know, for the rest of us. I mean, sure. And and she can just take the racket at your hand with the serve too. And it's just 
she just put and I love her attitude on court where she's not scared of anyone. And that's what's so awesome when she plays a Barty Osaka or a Sviatek is that she goes in there thinking not only that she can win, but that she will win. Um, and I really love that. But the but the reason I have her at five to make a long story short is just because of the lack of matches and the fact that she did kind of play half injured, like when she lost to Walter in Los Um it just kind of felt like at times she was going through the motions, but when she's healthy and playing at her best, she's unbelievable. And well, this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that's it. That's it. That's no, all. This is where I get to compliment you because you put it eloquently. There's a f- you to Danielle Collins where, and you know, Ben Rothenberg coined this tor- term. I've stolen it oh, over the years. Him. She has, <laughs> you're going to like this term. And he's a fellow Wolverine. Come on. On this, the week after we beat Ohio State, let's find some common ground. But Danielle Collins has main character energy. And what I mean by that is every time she steps on the court, doesn't matter who's across the net. It's no, no, no. This is my show now. You are here. This is a Danielle Collins match, not a Maria Sakari match or whomever the opponent across the court may be. And just, you know, when she's landing the first serve, it really is Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Um, But the ground strokes are just like they're so ferocious and she's just going to pull the trigger at will and that grunt just gets to you in the best way possible as a competitor like as a fan watching it you're just like oh yes i see why this com- package of energy power and just death by a thousand frustrating paper cuts but powerful paper cuts like it's just it really is impressive now i get why you knocked her because again 33 matches 21 and 12 you know that's it's a good record it's not an extraordinary record that's why i i leaped anisimova you're right it's just anisimova was really good for a little bit longer than collins was but i mean one could argue the Guadalajara match against Maria Sakari was one of the five most compelling matches of the 2022 season. With just the stakes on the line, Collins coming out swinging the way she did and just not backing down in the face of Maria Sakari, who just had so much more to play for in that moment. Um, I was really fond of Danielle Collins' season. It's just a reminder, like, she's been so extraordinarily injured, and yet whenever she is on court, she always is a top 15 sort of player. I just think her best, again, that I can argue her best was the best in American women's tennis this year. That's why I had her three initially, and that's why I can't put her lower than four. But I imagine your number four is the same as my number five in Bernardo Pera. No, so my number four is... Um, or sorry, your number four. Yeah, it's the same as my no, five. Wait, hold on. No, my number five is Collins. My number oh, uh, sorry, is- yeah. Your four is the same as my five. Uh, do, you me, do you want me to... Yeah, who's your four? Give it to okay. me. So my number four is Madison Keys. Really? Wow. Okay. I, wow. I, wait, you're... Okay. Okay, do you want me to... Do you want me to launch into it? Yeah, please. Okay, so she's world number eleven. That again, that does not factor into my my uh, ranking, but I just want to throw that out there. Um, she made the se- semifinals of the Australian Open, where she beat Bedosa. Well, she beat Kennan again. Kennan is not the Kennan of two years ago, but she's still a former champion. Um, Bedosa and Krejcikova. Um, she and I honestly, she played her best tennis of the season during that Australian Open until she got smacked by Barty. Um, she made the fourth round of the French Open. She won Adelaide too. Um, again, 
it counts the same. And when we look at 2022, Adelaide too counts the same as any other uh, international or 250 uh, event um, later in the season. So I'm still counting it the same. Um, and she uh, beat Coco Goff and Sam Sonova and Svitolina in that tournament. So it's a pretty damn good uh, international event or 250. Um, and then she, after she made the semifinals of Cincy, uh, where she beat Ostapenko, Sviatek, and Rubakina. She made the quarterfinals of Indian Wells. Uh, she uh, beat, she like I said, she made the semifinals of the Australian Open. And then during that fourth round of the French Open, he, on her worst surface, she still beat Caroline Garcia. I, I said Caroline, right? I hope you'd be proud of me there. Shout out to um, you. And then Rabakina there. Um, so I really, when I looked at who she beat during the year, and then overall she was 30 and 20. So that's a very solid record. So like I said, Grand Slam semifinals. She won a title. Um, and she beat some really impressive players, including Spiatek. Um, And so that, for me, just because of all that, she slightly edged Collins. I see your argument. Look, Madison Keys had five really good tournaments. She wins Adelaide to start the year, but wins over Svitolina, Samsonova, Goff. That's a really nice—I mean, her month in Australia, she was the second best player in Australia. With all due respect to Iga, Barty was the best. Madison Keys was your second best player. And all due respect to Danielle Collins as well, who was right up there on the list. But Madison Keys was that good I to agree. start the season. You know, quarterfinals, Indian Wells, the 1-0 loss to Iga was tough, but— Quarterfinals still count. Round of 16, Roland Garros, pretty good result for her to beat Garcia, Rabakina, you know, semifinals of Cincinnati. But that's really it. Like, you know, you look at some of the first round struggles or first match struggles for, you know, Madison Keys this year, losing matches to Harmony Tan and Victoria Golubic, Petra Martic once along the way as well, Asia Muhammad in Toronto as well, Kalanina in Miami. It was just an, an another up and down year for Madison. And while the highs were a little bit higher than we've seen over the course of the past year, it was just a little disappointing for me that she didn't capitalize on all of the momentum she built that first month. And of course, injuries played a factor in that. And, yeah. you know, again, I don't think Madison Keys had a bad year. She ended the year number 11. She's positioned herself perfectly. That set a ton of points to defend right off the bat. And it's just like, again, when we're playing the – this is where the non-quantifiable comes in. If I'm playing the expectation games of, you know, how was Madison Keys compared to my expectations for some of the other players I had coming into the season, it was a solid year for Keys, but it was kind of status quo. Like, I saw her do nothing this year that I haven't seen her do in the past. And maybe I'm being too harsh here, but like 30 and 20 – like she wins sixty percent of her matches. I know she finishes the year eleven. That's what happens when you make a Slam semifinal and a Masters one thousand semifinal in the same year, particularly in a year where there was so much turmoil and back and forths in the top ten. Like I just don't think Madison Keys was particularly outstanding. And I, as well, good as she was that first month, you're right. Like I can't. I just made an argument for Danielle Collins being so good that first month. Madison Keys had the same first month and played more tennis through the rest of the year. is But it just feels like Collins' injuries were more destructive to her season in disrupting her rhythm than Madison Keys was. And I guess I docked Keys for that fact because there were just some pockets of ugliness. 
I guess what I would ask you is 30 and 20 that different than 38 and 23? Yes, because it was, I mean, nine quarterfinals for Coco Goff this season. And she did make a slam final and she did qualify for the year end finals. What do you think was more impressive? Madison Key's run to the semifinals of Australia or Coco Goff's run to the final of Roland Garros? I mean, who did Keys beat? She beat like Krachikova. Bedosa. Yeah. Back when Bedosa was playing well. Sophia yeah, Kennan in first round. Sophia Kennan played well in that. Look, first it's a good round. draw, but the French Open, I can't knock the golf draw because it's you don't control who's across. Like, golf beat everyone she was supposed to beat definitively, and to watch her roll through that draw was so impressive. Now, Madison Keys was so good in Australia this year. Like, I don't mean to knock because, again, from an upside perspective, Collins and her may have played, you know, their best was probably the best we saw from any players in American women's tennis this season. It was just, again, it was a non, when I look back at Madison Key's career, am I going to mention 2022? I don't think so. Like, it was just like a, it was another Key's career where the highs were really high and the lows were lower than they should have been. And Fair. so for me, that's why I have Fair. her six. And that's why I have Bernarda Para number five. Oh, because wow. why I have Para at five. Let's hear it. She went 19 and two during a stretch of the uh, of the season. Like from July 11th to August 22nd, a month and a half. She went 19 and two, David. Won 90% of her matches. Wins Budapest. I know it wasn't the toughest draw. Wins Hamburg. A good win over Conteve in the finals. Finals of Concord, you know, a couple weeks later. Semi-finals Cleveland, where she runs into the buzzsaw that is Samsonova, but gets a really nice win over Krachikova. You know, Bernarda Pera had just been lingering at like 500 for the past like five years. You look at it, 2018, she's 27 and 25. 2019, 35 and 27. 2020, 10 and 13. Last year, 19 and 24. And you look for her this year, her age 27 season, it kind of had to happen this year. It was like, if you're going to be a top 50 player, it's kind of got to be now because a fifth year of stagnation in these tour level events, it's just really hard to not see yourself drop out of the top 100, which she did for the briefest of moments in July this year. And what's her response to dropping out of the top 100? 19 and two over a month and a half. She reaches a career high of number 42 is going to end the year at 44. And it just puts her in a new category of just like, Hey, guess what you get to do next year? No more 125Ks. No more qualifying. You're going to get into Indian Wells on your ranking. You're going to get into Miami on your ranking. And just life becomes a little bit easier for Bernarda Pera. She really does have the first six months of the year to play with before she has to defend that 19-2 and run. Like, Bernarda Pera, just so relentless, is the lefty. and For, for how long now? Well, that's the question. It's just like, but here's the thing. It's just like her window. Who raised their stock the most this year? Bernarda Pair is a top 50 player. That is an unequivocal raising of the stock. And I think it has to be number five because it took her into a completely new category of player, which is just like a top 50 player. I, are, do you want me to, am I good to respond or? Yeah, of course. No, of course. And I hate doing this because she's, she's number six on my list. And I hate, I hate doing this because. I actually like her and I want, you know, but I have to make the argument, the counter, um, which why I'm why I'm lower on her than you are. Um, she was one in four at the majors um, in second round at the Australian Open. She had all the momentum coming into the U.S. Open. 
she played a terrible match against Annalena Kalanina, um, who was not necessarily in form. Um, you mentioned that she's had all these winning, all the winning. She 19 and two, you mentioned overall on the year, she's 33 and 20. So that means she has a losing record on the rest of the year besides that two month stretch. And you just were talking about a keys had a one month stretch, you know, where she was all great in, in Australia with Adelaide two and, um, the Australian open. Well, Para had a two month stretch against lower level competition, Budapest International event, or I'm sorry, I keep saying that 250 is the new term. Um, Hamburg 250. You mentioned Concord. Do you want, let's talk about who she played in Concord to reach that final. She played Kayla Day, Anna Blinkova, Katie Volinets, and Katrina Scott before losing to Coco Vandaway in the final. Am I supposed to be impressed by that? By a top 50 player making the final of a, again, she was not top 50 at that time, but should I be impressed that she beat Kayla Day in her hideous game? No offense. Um, Anna Blinkova is playing pretty well, uh, played pretty well later on. Volinets, who has no weapons, and Katrina Scott. And then lost to Coco Vandaway. Am I supposed to be that impressed? The number five best player in the uh, an American women. Is, I'm not that impressed, to be honest. Um, and, and I don't mean to. Again, I'm not trying to. And uh, sure, but I also want to bring. You know, I just want to make the counter. Um, no, I think it's a fair counter to make. Now, again, level of competition is absolutely something you have to factor in. But you look for Bernardo Pera, she was 29-10 and 10 against opponents ranked outside the top 50 this year. Last year, 14-14. and 14. The year before that, 8-5. and five. The year before that, 31-19. and 19. She just clearly made a leap in level. And you're right. Did the level of competition any- was not the greatest, but she beat everyone she was supposed to beat. And you would be amazed how, like, again, that's the difference between a top 50 player or not. Did you win the match you were supposed to win? If you do, you're into a second round. You're into a quarterfinal. And for Bernarda Pera to make that leap after just so many years of playing so many close three-set matches but seemingly always falling short in those bigger moments, you're right. She struggled at the slams. But guess what? With her ranking now being a top uh, top 50 player, she's getting into all of them. Like the stress of am I going to be in qualifying? That doesn't exist anymore. She's going to get a shot to play the best of the best. And, you know, uh, Kayla Day turns into a first-round matchup against Magda Lynette or whatever it may be. And those are the matches Pear is going to have to win early in the season to solidify her ranking. But she gives herself that opportunity. And for me... I learned more about Bernarda Pera this season, and she exceeded my expectations more than I thought relative to the year than Madison Keys did. Like, I knew Madison Keys was capable of this season. Now, she did it, and her best was better than Pera's, but the leap Pera made to me is more valuable, and that's why she's my five. I guess for me, my issue with her, with Pera, is that she made the leap. You know, she did all that success, and then when she had that security, which you mentioned— she lost to Colonina, you know, because we knew after Cleveland that she was going to be in it. She lost to Colonina in a terrible performance. And then she lost to Kostiuk in a terrible performance. And then she made she did qualify against totally overwhelmed opponents in Ostrava. And then the first round, she lost to Kavitova. Then in San Diego, she lost in the second round to Robin Montgomery, which is a terrible loss. And then she lost to Gua- in Guadalajara in the first round again to Kavitova. So she had that security at the end of 2022. And then she totally fell on her face. And, and 
And sure, that's not probably reflective of how she's going to be in 2023, but we can't then say that her four or five tournament stretch before that is also is going to be reflective. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. That's fair, but I want to see what that middle is. And I want to see, again, what that level – we just have the opportunity to see her tested in a way more consistently. We haven't in her earlier stages of her career, so I'm excited for that. With that said, look, six players in, we have the same six names to start. I think from here on in is where things get particularly funky. David Gertler, who's your number seven? Wait, so wait, what's your top? So you have, okay, you just have them in so different. So I have pair of five, key six. You have, you have, you have Collins five, para six, correct? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so we you, have Keys and Isimova, Golf, Pagula, all in our top sixes. So we're all locked in. Um, but who is your number seven? I think alike. Yeah, that's yeah. what I like. But who's your number seven? That's okay. the question. My number seven, and I'm sorry for being like so slow paced with all this. No, um, you, you just, enough apologies. You should be sorry for being sorry because you have nothing to apologize about. All right, my number seven again. This was for me six through eight was also we're also about on the same tier. So maybe your so you have your tier of three and five, three through five. In my tier of three through five are different. Am I? I'm assuming that our tiers from here are going to be a little different too. Well, Keys is in her own tier for me, but seven through nine is pretty similar. Okay, so number seven for me is Sloane Stevens, and I did not expect before I started really diving in to have her at seven, but I couldn't. I can't deny quarterfinals at the French Open. She did come up a little small in that quarterfinal match against uh, Coco Goff, um, but she beat players like Nehemiah um, and Jill Teichman, who are both uh, top players to face. Um, she won Guadalajara. So again, for me, winning that WTA title, when I say Guadalajara, I mean the smaller Guadalajara, um, not the Masters 1000, which Pagula won, uh, just to clarify. Um, she won Guadalajara. She did go only 18 and 17 on the year, which is not that great, which I'm sure you're going to bring up as a knock on her. But then at the end of the year, she also made the quarterfinals of the Masters 1000 in Guadalajara, where she beat Garcia and Benchett. And for me, yes, she had a lot of lows, uh, most notably when she lost, I believe it was in, was it in Rabat to, uh, no, it was in Strasbourg to Berber, to Berberovich in Strasbourg in the first round. So that's really why. If she was more consistent, I might have even had her even higher. But her highs for me in terms of winning a WTA title and making a slam quarterfinal are higher than I had than anyone else below her on the list. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's a good inclusion. Now, I should have had her on my list probably. She finished 11th. Oh, you don't me. have her on her list. No, but I, you made a really good case. Like, I think her and Shelby Rogers had pretty similar seasons. They were I have them slashed next to each other in my 10 spot. I just wasn't sure who I was going to go with between the two, whether I was going to pick uh, Stevens or Rogers. I mean, again, like you're right. When we talked about this, I think earlier on the show, if not beforehand, like seeing Stevens at number 37 kind of shocked me. I was like, I didn't think Sloan Stevens actually ended the year that high, but you're right. She played a really good role on Garrow. She had some moments where, especially during that friendship when you're like, wait, is, is Sloan Stevens back? 
Like, is, yeah. is Stevens, you know, going to end the year as one of the millions of top 20 players we have on the WTA Tour? And I don't think she's quite one of the 40 players right now who you would consider a top 20 player on the WTA Tour. But she's inching closer to that. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Compared to 2020, 2021, she was miles better here in the 2022 season. That said, I just think other players made leaps that are more significant to me. So, for instance, 7, 8, and 9 to me are all very, very similar and all players who did the same category of thing. My number 7, David, and not to diminish, again, what Sloane Stevens accomplished because I think that's a good shout to her and you know, again, you feel like she can't sustain this top 50 ranking moving forward, which you might not have said over the last two years. But seven for me is Claire Lou, because when mm-hmm. I look for what the 22-year-old did this year, career high number 60 at the end of October, solidified herself number 61 to end the year. She's just now so clearly a top 75 player. And when you look for Lou this year, didn't play a ton of matches, 29 and 22 overall, but just, you know, for her to win the title at the Paris 125K, then go play Rabat and make the final there for her to come through in qualifying in Toronto, quarterfinals Tokyo, semifinals Monastir. She just very clearly proved she was a top 100 player this season. And you look for Lou, 15-4 and four against opponents ranked outside the top 50, 20-11 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. Uh, excuse me. She was 15-4 against opponents ranked outside the top 100, 20-11 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. You know, 8-11 and 11 against top 50 opponents, which 500, not, you know, right around 500, not a terrible first go of things for Claire Lou. You know, the power tennis she possesses, I love Claire Lou's backhand. She's just a gamer. And, you know, former Junior Slam champion, she has the pedigree. Things clicked for her in a way this year that they had just been on the precipice of doing over the last few seasons. And now that she is a top 100 player, much like Bernarda Pera, it's kind of like, okay, now we get to see what you're really made of. Now we really get to test what is that ceiling for Lou moving forward And I just can't overstate how much I value that jump from going outside the top 75 to inside the top 75. You can just play everything now. And I think that's the big thing for Claire Liu is how spread out her points are, you know, how much success she had across the calendar. She is positioned to make another leap in 2023. And I think that has to factor in as well. She's just really well positioned to continue on this trajectory. Versus Sloan, where it's just like, again, much like Madison Keys, it's kind of a holding pattern. I I agree with I agree with everything you said. She's number ten on my list. Um, okay. I think we probably I completely agree, and I can't argue with anything you said. Um, because as you kind of mentioned, she made not only did she win that Paris twenty one twenty five k, she beat Kanepi again on clay. That's not that impressive, but she also beat High Hadad Maya, which was a really great win in hindsight. Um, she did go, uh, to the third round of Charleston where she beat Shui Zhang. She, uh, made the Rabat final, a WTA tour final. Uh, she made the Tokyo quarterfinals where she beat, beat Risk and Mertens. Mertens was playing better by that time. Monastir at the end of the season, she beat Siniakova and Jabor. Really impressive stuff. And I like you kind of alluded to, she does have a very high ceiling and, I guess the reason why I had her a little lower is just because, though, again, I mentioned that, uh, who did I say was, oh, Bernardo Perra was one in four at major. So was Claire Lou. She didn't have that major success, that big major win or WTA title that Sloan Stevens had. 
Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to rag on her too much because I really do think that 2023 is going to be her, her and hopefully Mandalik and hopefully, hopefully Mandalik's not on my list, but I think those two could be their breakout year. Um, Claire Luz played 10 slam main draws in her life now. The big thing was this was the first season where she got to play all four main draws, and she drew two seeds in her first in Roland Garros Australian Open, tough Potapova matchup at the U.S. Open. The big thing is now she gets to play all four next year, like unequivocally. She's not going to have to go through qualifying or worry about any of that. I just – I really like how she's positioned herself. I also really like her game. Like I think she's gotten a lot better as a mover – the forehand backswing's a little bit big, but with how well she generates pace off of both wings, it's not Serena Williams' power tennis country club, but she's just, like, again, if you can't really get her stretched into the outer thirds, David, I just think her weapons are going to be a problem for a lot of players. Oh, yeah. She hits the ball. She can hit you off the court. Um, yeah. And I think that that is why I have her as a higher ceiling than uh, I think she has a very high ceiling, and I think that's a big reason why is that power, that easy power, that ability to take the racket at your opponent's hand and get three points on serve, I think is going to be really important. And she looked really good in beating uh, Jabor in uh, Monastir. I don't, Jabor was really motivated for that match given it was in Tunisia, and uh, Lou took it to her. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you said Lou was your number 10. Who's your number eight? Oh, I hate having eight and nine where they are, but I felt like I had to. Um, Allison Risk is number eight. I'm I you can't my camera's off, but I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> uh, uh, I, let me just get. I guess I'll give the argument. She she did. She is world number forty one. She made the fourth round at the U.S. Open. She has a decent record on the year twenty four and twenty one. She made the Nottingham final and the she made two WTA finals. Uh, she made Adelaide final where she lost the keys. Uh, she did get a walkover in the semifinals there, uh, but I can't knock her for that. And then she did make the Nottingham final and she beat uh, Garcia and Golubic, which I think are two good wins on grass. Um, she's a grass court. Uh, she's known for grass court play, which is partially why. Uh, her record, her grass results after Nottingham were so disappointing, losing in the first round of Birmingham, uh, her first match in Eastbourne, and the third round of Wimbledon to Buzkova. Uh, Buzkova is a very solid player, but on grass, that's not a great loss. Um, and her season kind of, uh, with the exception of the U.S. Open, was fell off a little bit from there. Um, but you know, it was a, still a solid year. And I felt like at the eighth spot, that seemed like a decent spot to put her there. Is she going to win a major or go deep, you know, go deep, deep in a major? Absolutely not. But, and I don't trust her mentally either. That loss in San Diego, in San Diego to Chirica was disgusting in <laughs> terms of the, the choking there. But, uh, you know, she had a solid season, and making two WTA finals is nothing to scoff at, so good for her. No, her, Sloan, Shelby all tied for 10th, where it's just like status quo seasons, where those status yeah. quo are top 50, but didn't move the needle for me. See, this is where we disagree on her list. I need On our list, I need a little bit more needle movement. So for me, the number eight, and not to just move on from your argument, but the number eight player for me, again, sticking with that Claire Lou theme of just making that next caliber leap, I have Katie McNally at eight, 
David. Ooh, I I'm thought curious about him. what you think about that because McNally thirty one and twenty three, and on paper a thirty one and twenty three record isn't that particularly outstanding. But you look at McNally, what she was able to do from the start of the grass court season to the end of the year. McNally ripped off a 25-11 and 11 stretch, David, from June 6th onward. She quartered in the Netherlands, round of 16, Birmingham, quarterfinals, Ostrava, where she got a really fun win over Carolina Mukova, a match I happened to be on the broadcast for. She wins Midland to end the season as well, makes her top 100 singles debut of course is held steady as a top 30 doubles player as well you know McNally's been a presence for so long because her and Coco Goff has had so much success right on the doubles court but Katie McNally's 21 years old and you know go ask any 21 year old hey I can't promise you anything but I'll promise you'll be top 100 by the time you turn 21 will you take it every single one of them would say yes Katie McNally accomplished that Her serve, her forehand, that ability to dictate on her terms, we saw it on display even in the Jabour match she lost in Cincinnati. She just has top 100 weapons, and you can see all of the pieces slowly starting to come together. I think making the top 100 is a huge moment for her. Getting to play that Australian Open main draw to start the season is going to be huge for her. I just think McNally... You know, now that she's in the top 100, I'm not sure when the next time she falls out is. And I think that's a massive leap. I can agree with you there. But I guess for me, again, uh, I had Allison Risk made two WTA finals. When I yeah. let's look at the level of comp, you mentioned, I think you said she went on, was it 25 and 11? You said 10 the yeah. year. I mean, even she made the quarterfinals of Rosmoin. She beat Seville and in the main draw. No, her best wins over the that 25-11 stretch are Zdancic on grass courts, a grain of salt, Mertens in three sets, Mukova in three sets. Mukova honestly, and then honestly, maybe a resurgent Sonia Kennan in Midland. Like you're right, those aren't the greatest wins, but they were the wins she needed to get into the top 100. Yeah. And I agree. And I think that where our lists are differing is and not, and I don't think one of us is right. And one of us is wrong, but you're maybe looking more potential, you know, like for the future. Always. Yeah. I'm looking yeah, more like just at this you know, season again, I don't think one's right. And one's, one's wrong. When I look at potential, absolutely. Claire lose above Shelby Rogers and Allison risk, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess here's the, and by the way, that's why I love having you as the guest on this show because we do do look at it differently. I always go when I'm looking back at the 2022 season, you know, who are the players I'm going to remember it for most significantly? And like, I'm not going to remember it as the Shelby leap or the Sloan leap or the risk leap. I will remember, hey, you know, McNally, Claire Lou. And then let me just get into it now. You want to know who's number nine on my list? I went Katie Volleynets because wow, I don't agree there. <laughs> I just think she's the. I mean, and it's the same coach, so it's a little bit of a lazy take, but she's very female Brooksby, like for Katie Volleynets. It's just like so precise. You know exactly what Volleynets is going to do before she does it because it's so in rhythm. It is machine like, and you look for Volleynets thirty six and twenty five overall, up to number one hundred nine to end October, sitting at number one twelve to end the year. I don't know what her upside is, but she plays a lot of matches. She wins a lot of matches. She is a nightmare opponent to face because she's just not going to beat herself. For lower-level players. No, but I'm. I, you're right. Again, I don't know what the ceiling is, 
But I'm fascinated by the floor, David. I'm like, she's a former San Diego national champion. Like, again, 21 years old, 112, or turns 21 at the end of December. She's currently 112 in the rankings. Which is not that young relative to some of the, yeah, when we're but talking But at the about same Tokyo. time, it's it's like the difference for Volley Nets is it's been steady progression. There's never been one massive result, massive sort of performance that's propelled her forward in the rankings. It's been much slower and steadier. And yet coming out of 2022, David, she's now on the precipice of the top 100, which honest to God, I didn't expect to say. Yeah, I guess my issue with Volley Nets is I really think she's a very low ceiling. I don't see the sure. power, you know, like that we talked no, about. No, for sure. You know, I think even like someone like Ann Lee has that, that easy power. Yeah. Um, McNally doesn't necessarily have as much power as someone like Claire Lou, but I love her neck game and her attacking mindset. And so I just don't see it with Volley Nets, to be honest. I, I really like her game. Like like we were talking at the very beginning, I'm a big Anshba fan. So I'm not going to like – my personal liking of a player is not necessarily dictated by how high I think they can go in the rankings. And I really like how consistent and solid and the depth that Volley Nets gets on her ground strokes. But when I look at WTA tour level – who can uh, Volley Nets really challenge? I don't know if I see it. I think that the, you know, that the top players, not even the top, but like top 50 players can hit her off the court. And yes, she scrambles. Yeah. Well, and yes, she's fast and yes, she's consistent, but I just, I don't see enough power there to disrupt uh, a lot of her opposition. Um, Despite, you know, the fact that she, yeah, she did beat uh, uh, Ronksta Roos in Indian Wells, and she did beat Taylor Townsend in Palm Harbor. Uh, but I, do you see what I'm saying, though? Oh, a hundred percent. And that's why I'm so fascinated by 2023, because I want to see her tested by those weapons. I do think the faster the speed, I actually think she'll adjust well. Like, she just always has. It's taken sometimes a year but when she acclimates herself to the level, she just wears you down. And so you're right. I need to see what the athletic ceiling is, but I'm very, very interested. And she's just put herself in a position to at least try to answer that question. She is Claire Lou last year, if that makes sense, where it's just like, all right, let's see if you can also now make that leap, establish yourself as a top 100 player. But with that said, you know my list. Volley Nets 9, Rogers, Stevens, Risk for all their various successes tied for 10th. David, give me your final two names. Let's start number 9. Who so, is it for you? So 10 is Lou. Yeah. Um, oh, you're right. So who's your 9? It's, uh, this is another one. Excuse me while I it's get It's Shelby, yeah. isn't it? It's Shelby, and I, yeah. I really – Alex, I really wanted to take her off my list. I really said, ah, just not her. Not anything against her personally, but just she's so, her and Risk are just such, they're bland players. And, but I. Uh, That's why I left them off mine, David. That's why I was like, I can do better. But yeah, but, the, but see, this is my mindset. I looked at her results and I'm like, I can't, I can't leave her off. It's you true. know, she. Although she did only go 19 and 20 on the season, which is not that great. She did make the really impressive. I must say her, her, her uh, week in San Jose where she made the finals and came a set away from the title was really impressive beating and Drew uh, Sakari and Kudermetova. Um, 
She did make the Adelaide quarterfinals. She beat Ostapenko in the Indian Wells third round. To make the third round of Miami, she beat Ostapenko and Anisimova. She beat Collins to make the third round of the French Open. She beat Rybakina to make the semifinals of Rosmalin. So for me, I just saw all of that. And I must say, I don't want to downplay it. Those are really you know, beating Rybakina with her serve on grass, beating Collins even off, even on clay. Uh, in a major, you know, with her ferocity, especially in those big moments, be, you know, that third round of Miami is about as impressive as the third round as you can get. I felt like I'd be lying to myself if I didn't put her on this list at number nine. It's a very good case. And so to recap real quick, what do the lists look like? And David, correct me if I'm wrong here with any of your takes. Number one, we both have Jessica Pagula. Number two, we both go with Coco Goff. Number three, David convinces me, justifiably so, have to go with Amanda Anisimova. Now, number four, I go Danielle Collins. He goes Madison Keys. Number five, I go Bernardo Pera. He goes Danielle Collins. Number six, I go Madison Keys. He goes Bernardo Pera. Seven, Claire Lou for me. Sloan Stevens for David. Eight, Katie McNally for me, Allie Risk for David. Nine, Katie Volley Nets for me, Shelby Rogers for David. Ten, he goes Claire Lou. I go the combination of Rogers, Stevens, and Risk. With that said, David, we're going to rapid fire through some honorable mentions. You just tell me yes or no. Do they deserve a shout out? Alicia Parks. I I don't base a full season on one week, so no. Okay, that's fair. But are you intrigued? I am happy for her one week. Okay. Emma Navarro. Uh, I think she has some potential. Does she have the drive given her background? I'm not sure. Peyton Stearns. Uh, wait, what's this list in terms of like what? No, just again, keep – I mean, Navarro no. and Stearns, it was six months, but it's like it was I an would, intriguing six months, was it not? Navarro I like much more than Stearns. Fair. Brangle? I love Madison Brangle's game. There it is. I wish I could have her on my list. I really do. I don't – but – and she did have a lot of success at lower levels. Am I intrigued for year 2023? Not any more than I typically would to see her – I, I must say, watching her in Cleveland, you were at Cleveland, right? I was. Remember that match? Who did she play? Where she The just, three-set win where she broke. Um, oh, my God. I can see her face. You know what I'm talking just, about? Yeah, I was there. Um, it wasn't Lynette. It was um, – was, was it, it Lynette? No, I got now. I'm gonna. I gotta. But 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 yeah, I I remember. We're literally. You could just see things. Oh, it wasn't Mertens. Was I'm looking it up. Give me like. No, I can see the face. Don't tell me the name because I was at the freaking match and I can literally watch it all unfold and like I can see the opponent being like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I'm gonna lose this freaking." I know who it is now. It's it's not Mertens, right? No, it's not. It feels like Mertens, though. It's a Mertens-esque player. Oh my, I, I was there. I was freaking there. It wasn't Para, because Para got blitzed by Samsonova. Oh, was that rough? It wasn't Kennan, because Kennan lost to Para. Ooh, was that rough? Actually, that was a really good match. Um, oh my God, who was it? I watched her literally. Was the player seated? Um, I have to assume so. Oh, it was Serana Kirstea, wasn't it? No, no, it was not. Who was it? 
It was Alexandrova. Oh, it was Alexandrova who kind of looks like Merton. So that's why I could see that face so clearly. Ah, oh, yeah. But that was that was the I love that man. I love just seeing because that's how I in my at a much much lower level. That's how I play too. It's kind of like Brangle, like Ansh, but so it's just seeing that look of anguish on Alexandrova's face as she just. Couldn't hit through Brangle. That was awesome. But last two names for you: Elizabeth Mandelik. Mandelik, I'm high on. Deserves a shout out. And then Ashlyn Kruger, former San Diego oh. champion. She hits the cover off the ball. Yes, and she gave Azarenka a run for her money at the U.S. Open. I love her game. I actually think out of like if we, I think she has a high ceiling. I think she's a very high ceiling, and I'm excited to see how she progresses. I absolutely agree with you. Well, with all of that said, David, I think that's our look at the 2022 American Women's Tennis season. That said, of course, uh, I want to offer you the final word. Any final thoughts as we look back on that 2022? Well, I first want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, I it, it, I think it's been like an hour and a half. It has not felt like it feels like it's been like 30 seconds. I agree. This I looked up at the clock and said, oh, my God, it's been an hour and a half. Like this was this was particularly juicy. We needed this. And so I I would just say in ter- I want to see next season some player. It doesn't have to be golf step up and become a contender. And it might be someone like Ashlyn Kruger, Claire Lou, you know who comes out of nowhere. Uh, but I want to see someone step up and really, and when I say contend for a major, I don't just, cause I know you're going to say, Oh, but Coco Goff made a final. I, I still think that in terms of winning a major versus major final, that's a big gap. And I want to see someone really step up and become a major contender to win a major. And I think it's possible given the women we have, I mean, look at our list. Look how many you mentioned before, look how many top 50 players we have. And it could be Anissa Moba, honestly. Mm-hmm. Who's, That's you know, what I was going to say. Three words for you. Healthy Amanda Anissa Mova. That... Let, me, let me propose this to you. What do you, do you think? A, do you think Anissa Mova wins a major in 2023 and B, if she doesn't, what's the farthest you have her going in a major? No, she doesn't. Semifinals. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. I'm not sure which one, but no, she doesn't in semifinals feels like the right progression. Then 24, 25, 26. And now we start to see things uh, really rolling, but I also wanted to ask you, my friend, and by the way, you will be on this podcast again here during this off season, but what else do you have planned? What can we expect from you? Honestly, I was, I knew you were going to ask me even before. And I was like, what am I going to say? Because I am, you know, for me right now, cause like my action network stuff, you know, it's the off season. There's not, you know, um, so that's done for the year. Um, but honestly, I'm kind of like, I wrote like an article maybe in during Paris about Diego Schwartzman. I'm just kind of like, whenever I think of something, I write it, but like, I don't have a lot of ideas. So if you wanted me to write something for Crack Rackets, I'm happy to do so. Um, Remember that you said that, David, because now Pandora's box has been open. I appreciate that, my friend. And please know all of us always look forward to whenever you do put those fingers to work. With that said, we'll be back tomorrow here on this show to break down the top 10 American men's seasons. I brought on both of the Davids. I've got Gertler here for the women, Kane for the men. So be on the lookout for that podcast to drop here this week. Wait, hold on. Sorry. I got to ask you for your thoughts. Speaking of the American men, what do you think of the whole Davis cup uh, stuff? 
I talked about it on the show a couple days ago. I, I, no one looks good coming out of it. That's my takeaway, is that no one looks good coming out of it. Of course, Rajiv Ram should have been on the roster. Again, no one looks good. No one looks good coming out of it. That's Why my takeaway. Why do you think that Marty Fish left him off? What's I, the reasoning? What's the logic? Because there has to be something. It's a question I hope to explore, and I don't want to step on things, but let's just say we're hoping to have some Davis Cup team members on the show later yeah. this month, and let's just say – we hope to get into it on that specific topic because uh, I don't want to speak out of hand because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they listen to that 91st minute of every mini break podcast, David. So uh, I don't know. I don't mean to put you in the spot. Either. No, 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 not at all. I just I don't know what happened. And I, yeah. do, I agree. I think we need a more flushed out answer because yeah. it's kind of ridiculous. Um, with that said, though. A shout-out, as always, to our dear super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a fascinating job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout-out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Gertler, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Thank you. Seriously, thank you so much.